Good morning. This morning we are continuing our series through the book of Proverbs, Way of Wisdom. This is now part 13, and uh, today we are going to backtrack just a little bit, and we're going to go back and cover a passage that we skipped over last week. So for those of you who were here last week, we, you know, we learned Proverbs um, 5, 6, and 7. Right? We learned Proverbs chapters 5 through 7 and focused on the topic of adultery, since that's mostly what those three chapters are about. But at the time that I was preaching on it last week, I told you that we were skipping part of chapter 6. Do you remember that? Because it wasn't on the topic. And so, in other words, these three chapters, the section of Proverbs that we're in, it's 85 verses, and 66 of those verses are about adultery, and 19 of them are about other topics. So last week we covered the 66 verses, and today we are now going to cover the 19 verses. So today's passage is Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 19. That's the section that we skipped over. My title for this sermon is Three Types of Fools. Three Types of Fools. The father of Proverbs is continuing to talk to his son in this section of Proverbs, and he uh, identifies three other ways to be foolish. And when I say three other ways, I'm thinking of this through the lens of last week, like this passage is found in the middle of a larger section about adultery. So when I say three other ways to be foolish, the first way is adultery, right? One of the ways to be foolish is adultery. And then he also lists three other ways, at least three other ways here in this passage. And since it's been a while, since we learned the first four chapters of Proverbs, I wanted to go ahead and remind you that when Proverbs talks about foolishness and when it warns us against certain behaviors, Um, there is quite a bit of overlap between foolishness and wickedness in the book of Proverbs. Do you remember that when we learned that back in like January and February? Quite a bit of overlap, not totally, but quite a bit of overlap. A lot of the things that Proverbs talks about or the Proverbs would say is foolish are things that um, they're not just silly, they're wrong. Okay. Now I say some overlap because I don't know that every single thing that Proverbs warns against is always a sin and is always wicked. We did talk about that back in January. Remember how we said there's one of the Proverbs says that you're not supposed to bless or greet someone early in the morning in a loud voice, right? Why? That's not because that's a sin. That's because that's annoying, right? And the book of Proverbs cares about your relationships. And so some of the Proverbs are not about sin, but I would say a lot of them are. Probably the majority of them are. A great example of overlap between foolishness and wickedness as far as like what Proverbs warns us against would be the 66 verses we learned last week. Adultery is not just annoying, it's sinful, right? So we just have to remember that there's somewhat of an overlap between wickedness and foolishness when we look in the book of Proverbs. So today, we learned three types of fools. We're going to put the three types of fools up on the board for you here. Three types of fools, the overpromiser, the slacker, and the troublemaker. That's who we're going to learn about this morning, okay? The overpromiser, the slacker, and the troublemaker. Um, in order to learn about these guys, we're going to go verse by verse through the passage. So let's start with the overpromiser, Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says this, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor or entered into an agreement with a stranger, you have been trapped by the words of your lips and snared by the words of your mouth. Do this then, my son, and free yourself For you have put yourself in your neighbor's power. Go humble yourself and plead with your neighbor. Don't give sleep to your eyes or slumber to your eyelids. Escape like a gazelle from a hunter, like a bird from a fowler's trap. So what is this section talking about? I mean, the dad specifically says, don't put up security for your neighbor. That's what he says not to do. Don't don't put up security for your neighbor or don't enter into an agreement with a stranger. 
What is that talking about? What does he mean there? Well, if you look throughout the rest of Proverbs, you'll see this is not the only place in Proverbs that it talks like this. Okay? Apparently, whatever this was, the agreement with the stranger and the security for your neighbor, whatever this was, was something that um, they were concerned about because it comes up multiple times in the book of Proverbs. If you go to Proverbs chapter 11, verse 15, it says, If someone puts up security for a stranger, he will suffer for it, but the one who hates such agreements is protected. Can you put that one up, please, for me? Proverbs 11, 15. 11.15? You don't have it? Oh, all right. Well, I promise. It's right here. Okay? So it says, if someone puts up security for a stranger, he will suffer for it. The one who hates such agreements is protected. So the writer of Proverbs here is saying that there's some kind of agreement that you're supposed to hate. It's bad. You're supposed to avoid it. Well, what is it? So then we go to Proverbs 17, verse 18. Okay? Do we have that one? All right. Proverbs 17, verse 18. It says, one without sense, right? So that's the foolish person. One without sense enters an agreement and puts up security for his friend. So again, we have this thing. It's, it's foolish to enter into this agreement. What is this? Any, any kind of agreement? No, something specific is being talked about here. He puts up security for his friend. And you notice sometimes it says security for a stranger. Sometimes it says it for a friend. So apparently it's not. The problem isn't who it is that you're doing this with. The problem is the agreement itself, right? You're not supposed to be putting up security for your friend. And then he, we still like, well, but what is that? What does it mean to put up security? One more passage, Proverbs chapter 22, verses 26 through 27. And it says, don't be one of those who enter agreements, who put up security for loans. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere. If you have no money to pay, even your bed will be taken from under you. And so now we start to figure out what this is. So this agreement has something to do with putting up some sort of security for a loan for someone else. It's some sort of financial something because if you, there can come a point where you're supposed to pay it back and if you're not able to pay it back, they're going to come to your house and take all your stuff. They're going to take your bed out from under you. So we can see that whatever this is, the putting up of security and entering into the agreement with a stranger, it's helping somebody get a loan that they otherwise would not be able to get. And it seems to be, at least in the case of chapter 22, verses 26 and 27, that you are pledging money that you don't have, right? He says you're not supposed to put up security for loans. If you have no money, that's the assumption, if you have no money to pay, even your bed will be taken from under you. So it is helping someone who get a loan that they otherwise could not get, and you're pledging money, probably, that you don't have. So what's the dad warning against here? I think the closest modern-day equivalent that I can think of in our culture, and that many other people would say this too, is co-signing a loan. This is a warning against co-signing a loan. Now, in a room this size, there's probably some of you who have done that, and now you're going, whoa, is co-signing a loan always a sin? Okay? And my response to that is, I don't think so. I don't know, that every, I, I don't know everything that was involved culturally and financially when these Proverbs were written. Um, but I, I wrote down a series of questions for, for you to think through, because I think that the idea here isn't necessarily you label something something and then say, now that thing's always wrong that fits under that label. No, what is it that the dad's trying to forbid here? What is it he's telling his, his kid to watch out for? And so this is a little series of questions I wrote for you to ask, if you, to think about yourself if you're in the same situation. Okay? You're trying to help somebody else out, you're co-signing for this loan, or you're just putting up security for your neighbor, and I guess this is the, this is the series of questions I, I would suggest you ask. Number one, Why? Why is your friend trying to buy something that they don't have the money for? Because that's, that's what a loan is. A loan is I want to spend money that I have not yet earned. Okay? So why does your friend want to 
have money that he has not yet earned, okay? Is it a need or a want, okay? Now, let's say it's a want, okay? It's, they, they, it's, it's a, you're co-signing for a speedboat, okay? Or whatever it is. But let's just say, so why, why do they want to spend money they have not earned yet? Is it a need or a want? So let's say the answer is a want. Then my follow-up question is, why are you helping him buy things he doesn't need with money he doesn't have? Now, if you say, well, no, it's not that. It's about need, okay? It's not that the person, it's not a want. This is the, the they're going to get kicked out of the house if they don't get this loan. This is the, the, to buy medicine for the children. The, this guy's on the brink of poverty. This is to make sure that they have enough food, right? To which I say, okay, great. So, and they need your help. Yeah, they need my help. Well, then why wouldn't you give it to them? Why in the world are you getting involved in this complicated loan thing and interest and all that? Why not just buy the medicine for his children? Why not say you can live with us for a little while till you get back on your feet? Why not say, I've got some food for you? Why not give them the money? I mean, the Bible talks so many times about helping the poor, not helping the poor get in debt, but just literally you giving your money to them. Why not, why not help them if they're on the verge of poverty? And if the answer to that is because you don't have the money to give, then why are you agreeing to this loan? Why are you promised to paying off something that you don't have the money for? You see, do you see what I'm getting you to kind of think through? I don't know all that was envisioned at the time that this was written, but clearly the dad in this passage is warning against unwise financial entanglements. And in verses 3 through 5, he tells his son to put forth great humility and great effort into getting out from under these agreements. So that's the overpromiser. okay? Now we move on to fool number two, okay? So we got the overpromiser. now we move on to the slacker. Slacker is found in verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, Go to the ant, you slacker. All right, so I didn't even make up the name for the second guy. For some of you like, well, why, why aren't you? You should be more gentle when you talk about people. This is the, that's the word in the passage, okay? Go to the ant, you slacker. That's why I named him that. In the old, uh, I think older English versions and other versions, they say sluggard, okay? If that makes you feel better, then they're just a sluggard, not a slacker. Okay, go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in the summer. It gathers its food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, and your need like a bandit. So here the father rebukes laziness, right? And um, this may be connected to the paragraph that comes before, in the sense that the first paragraph was talking about something that you could do that would bring you to financial ruin, and this would be another thing that you could do that would bring you to financial ruin, right? You could sign all these agreements, or you could just be someone that just naps a lot, all right? You could be someone that just doesn't go to work, and it will bring you to financial ruin. So he describes the behavior, verses 9 and 10. He says, how long will you stay in bed, slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? So he's describing the behavior, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest. And I don't think that he's, I don't think we need to, it's, I think it's obvious what he's saying here. He's not saying it's always a sin to take a nap, right? It's not that sleep is wrong. It's not wrong to sleep. In fact, if you try not to sleep for too long, you'll see it's really not good for you, all right? It's not that it's wrong to sleep. It's not that it's wrong to nap. I think that it's really obvious that the dad is saying here, this is the person who is like, well, I'm just going to take another nap, even though I've got this stuff to do, even though there's a deadline, even though this needs to get done, even though this would be really important that I got it done, even though I said I would show up. This is the, I'm just going to snooze a little more. I'm just going to go in late. This is the, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call in sick, okay? I'm not sick, I'm just tired, which feels 
sort of like sick and said, I'll just, and I know I need to get it done this week, but I can always get it done next week. And, and I'm just, I'm going to quit this job because it's, it's, so, it's so hard work and I can always find another one next time. Like it's just the always, I need always an excuse. Always I'm not going to work. I just, I'm perpetually going to rest. I'm going to do as little work as possible. And he describes the, the result of it. Verse 11, and your poverty will come like a robber. Your need like a bandit. Well, how does a robber come? If a robber comes into your house, how does a robber show up? A robber shows up uninvited and then takes all your stuff, right? That's what a robber does. And the dad is saying, you keep folding your arms to rest. You keep saying, oh, this is a lot of work. You keep not showing up. You keep not working. And one day poverty is going to show up uninvited and take all your stuff. And on that day, you need to realize you're the one that left the door open. I think that's what the dad is saying here. You're the one that let him in. And then he tells him what to do about it. Well, what do we do about this problem? Here it is, verses 6 through 8. Go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, right? The ants don't ever have like elections or anything. Um, It prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. Sounds like it's saying that that the ants work hard and that ants work ahead, Right? that they're setting aside and gathering food. And there, I looked this actually up. There's on Wikipedia. There's a type of ant called uh, harvester ant. And they really do, in certain times of the year, collect seeds that I guess are like, abundant during parts of the year. And then they go to their little ant hill and they store them there. And then later on, other, during other seasons where the seeds are not as available, they eat the seeds then. So maybe this guy knew about that and he was pointing that out. But he seems to be saying they work hard. He seems to be saying maybe they work ahead. And so he's telling the slacker, you're supposed to be like that. You're supposed to be working hard like that and working ahead like that and be thinking about the future like that. And don't be lazy. Quit laying around. Get to work like the ant. And, and this is a criticism. I don't know why he chose the ant as the, thing, as, the, as the illustration here. Maybe that's just the best thing he could think of. But I think it's at least possible that this was supposed to be a humiliating criticism. That he's supposed to say to the slacker, be like the ant, like the what? Like this, this little thing right here. Like this little thing that's one ten thousandth the size of you is better than you at this. So be like that thing. Okay, dad, I'm sorry. Don't be lazy. That's the point. Don't be lazy. So that's the slacker. So now let's go ahead and move on to fool number three. All right, so we've talked about the overpromiser. We've talked about the slacker. We move on to the troublemaker. The next verse, chapter six, verse 12. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes around speaking dishonestly, winking his eyes, signaling with his feet, gesturing with his fingers. He always plots evil with perversity in his heart. He stirs up trouble. That's where I got the name from, troublemaker. He stirs up trouble. Therefore, calamity will strike him suddenly. He will be shattered instantly beyond recovery. So here, the description of the troublemaker is, um, well, what does he do? If you look through verses 12 through 14, what he does, it says, he goes around speaking dishonestly. I think if that were translated like literally, it's he goes around with a crooked mouth, is what they said. He goes around with a crooked mouth, and I guess that was a Hebrewism for someone that uses their mouth wrongly, like to lie or to gossip or to slander. So he goes around with a crooked mouth, he goes around speaking dishonestly, and then it describes that he winks with his eyes, he signals with his feet, he gestures with his fingers. And I guess there's some, like different people have different opinions as as to what that's exactly describing, but it seems to me that probably the majority view is this is some kind of deception, 
This whole winking, this whole signaling, this is, this is I'm saying one thing, but like, here's the real thing that I'm really planning, right? And so I'm saying this, and then I'll come out, oh, really, I will be there, right? So he's, he's doing these things, with, he's doing these gestures because he's deceiving the person, he's tricking the person. And then it says he always plots evil with perversity in his heart. He's a schemer. And what does he cause? What's the result of his life? The second half of verse 14 says he stirs up trouble. He's a troublemaker. He stirs up trouble. And this word trouble, if you look up the, the word, like in the, in the Hebrew, I looked it up because it seems like a very generic word to me, trouble in English, but it's, it's actually a word that could also be translated conflict or discord. And so it's, I don't think he's just stirring up like trouble for himself. He's stirring up conflict. He's stirring up discord. He's, he's turning other people against each other. And what's the result of all this? The result is verse 15. Therefore, calamity will strike him suddenly. He will be shattered instantly beyond recovery. And um, so obviously the result here is his downfall. It seems to me, and I'm not 100% sure, but it seems to me that this passage is not talking about God judging him like directly, right? Because God's not in this verse. So this isn't, he's sinful, and so God is then going to intervene and crush him. It just says calamity will strike him suddenly and he'll be shattered instantly beyond recovery. So it may very well be that this is talking not about direct judgment from God, but just the natural consequences of living this way, the natural consequences in this life, that you can only plot so much, you can only lie so many times, you can only trick so many people, you can only cause so much conflict before eventually all the trouble you're causing falls back on you. And that doesn't mean it's not from God. I mean, God is the one who created this world and the way things work. And so there's a sense in which that's a judgment from God because God's made everything the way it is. But it may not be a directly God comes in and smites you. It's just you live your life and you wait long enough and it will fall back on you. And so that's the troublemaker. And then there's four more verses that come right after the troublemaker paragraph that I didn't originally know what to do with. But I'm going to just read them to you now. These are the next four verses that come. It says, verse 16, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. And so at first when I read this, I thought that this was just a fourth section that's so, sort of unrelated to the stuff that came before it, right? So you've got the overpromiser, and you've got the slacker, and you've got the troublemaker, and then you have a list of seven things that God hates. Um, and maybe that is what it is. But as I study this, and as I read commentaries on it, I noticed that m most of the sins, many of the sins that are in this list of seven, apply to the troublemaker in the passage before. It says God hates, and then there's a list of what he hates. And if you look at verse like 18, he, he, God hates a heart that plots wicked schemes. Well, just a few sentences earlier, it said that the, uh, the troublemaker always plots evil. And then in verse 17, one of the things that God hates is a lying tongue. And then that comes up again in 19, a lying witness. And earlier, what had been the troublemaker described as? Someone with a, a crooked mouth, right? Someone who speaks dishonestly is the way they translated it in verse 12. And then the big one, the one that's probably really obvious, is in verse 19, the last thing that God hates in the list is one who stirs up trouble among brothers. Well, he had just said that about the troublemaker. He, this is verse 14, he stirs up trouble. And so one of the commentaries I read actually suggested maybe the connection 
is that verse 15 is true because verses 16 through 19 are true. In other words, verse 15, the verse that says calamity will strike him suddenly, the reason that that's true is because God hates his behaviors. Okay, so what's the point of this passage? What's the point of this sermon? And I would say there are three. Don't be an overpromiser. Don't be a slacker. Don't be a troublemaker, right? That's what we, when we read through this passage, we see that the Father is warning of those three things. Don't be an overpromiser. Don't be a slacker. Don't be a troublemaker. And so sometimes when I'm preaching and kind of preparing a sermon and I come across a passage like this one, um, where there's multiple topics. You know, sometimes you have passages like last week where you've got a ton of verses and they're all on the same thing. So, it's real, so I just, I preach on whatever the topic is. But sometimes when I come across passages like this, where you have just a few words and a few more words and a few more words and you've got multiple topics, I try to think to myself, I try to see, is there any thread that ties all of these passages together? Right? If I'm going to talk about three things, is there any way, to t while talking about the three things, to talk about one thing? Is there any one theme or one string that sort of like holds all of this together? Is there something they all have in common? And this is the phrase that came to my mind as I was thinking about it. Today is a domino that touches tomorrow. Today is a domino that touches tomorrow. I did not make up that phrase. I heard it from another preacher. But I really like it. The idea is... Today, this day, the choices that you make today, the behaviors that you do today, those things, those choices touch tomorrow. Today's a domino that touches tomorrow, and tomorrow is a domino that touches the day after it. And the next day is a domino that touches the day after that, which is a domino that touches the day after that, which means that there are things that you are doing today that are connected to the you that you will be 10 years from now. And so the original context that I heard this on, the topic was dating. I believe that's what the preacher was talking about. And the idea that he was trying to get across goes something like this. He was saying that you cannot imagine when you're 17 years old that who you choose to date and what you choose to do when you're dating has nothing to do with the person you will one day be married to. That who you choose to date when you're 17, you cannot believe that that has nothing to do with the kind of person you'll be married to when you're 27. There's a connection between 17-year-old you and 27-year-old you. There's a bunch of dominoes in between, but they start now, the decisions you make now. And so there are a lot of times you go, well, I'm not even thinking about when I'm 27, especially when you're 17. 27 feels like, whoa, that's like old people, right? That's like so far away. And right now, I'm just thinking about this, Right? And I'm not thinking about the fact that the decisions I make and the things that I do now are going to affect, the, the stuff I do with my boyfriend or girlfriend right now is going to have some sort of effect on what I'm doing six months from now. It will have an effect on what I'm doing a year from now. It will have an effect on who I'm engaged to three years from now. It will have an effect on who I'm married to five years from now. But we're not thinking about that, especially, especially when you're 17. You're just sitting there going, who... You, you, the, the questions are, if today's a domino that touches tomorrow, that touches tomorrow, that touches tomorrow, and the you you are 10 years from now is connected to who you are today, then we cannot just be going, well, what do I want to do this Friday? Oh, I just want to have some fun. But wait, but what you do this Friday is not just connected to the fun of this Friday. It's connected to the rest of the years of your life. And the fun that you have this Friday is going to be connected to the fun you have next Friday, but it's going to be connected to all the Fridays that you have after that. And behaviors start to become habits. 
And you start to form ways of living that are the ways that you live. Because today's a domino that touches tomorrow. And so, I mean, when you're, when you're, and this is hard to do, I realize, but when you're 17, you're dating, you don't usually think to yourself, is this the kind of person that I would want to be the father of my children? Well, no, I, I just want to go to prom. I'm not even thinking about that, right? But, but the behaviors you have now turn into habits, right? Is this the kind of person that you would want to be the mother of your children? or to be someone that you share a house with, or someone who has a credit card in your name, can spend whatever they want, spend your money on your behalf. Is this that kind of person? I wasn't even thinking about that. We just both like longhorns, right? (laughs) No, seriously, the who you are today is affected to who you'll be later. And, And behaviors now create habits. They do. You know that. You don't even have to have a Bible to know that. Everybody knows that. In fact, we have phrases for this. In fact, I was thinking about it. We actually have two phrases in English that talk about the fact that behaviors become patterns or behaviors become habits. And, and it's two different words that we use in English, and they're actually synonyms, and yet we only use one for negative stuff, and we use the other one pretty much only for positive stuff. But the words are rut and groove. I've heard a lot of people who say the word rut, like, I'm stuck in a rut, right? And that's a negative thing. And then the positive thing is, ooh, she's really in a groove. And it's weird to me because technically a rut and a groove, they're the same thing, right? They're synonyms. A rut's a groove, a groove's a rut. It's a thing that, you know, you put there and then you put the ball and it rolls down the groove or it rolls down the rut, whatever you want to call it. And yet, in English, we always use one positively and one negatively. I've never heard anyone go, I'm in this fantastic rut lately. (laughs) No. So there's I'm stuck in a rut and there's the, oh, I'm in a groove or he's in a groove. And here's the thing. The, The fact that those two phrases exist is how we know, you already know this, behaviors create habits. Negative behaviors create negative patterns, ruts. Positive behaviors create positive habits, grooves. And so we're living our lives. Here's a set of dominoes, okay? And then when you press this domino, the next one falls over, and this, that one falls into the next one, which falls into the next one, okay? And when this one falls over, the rest of them fall, and this one falls last, okay? It falls a little bit later than this one does, okay? And I know this is only, uh, I think, eight dominoes, so it almost seems like they fall all at the same time. But if you did a camera and you slowed down the footage, you'd realize this one falls down later, right? You, you, you touch this one, and this one falls down later. And we are living, I think, in a culture where there are far too many of us who are living our lives, and we're knocking this domino down now. And then years later, we're shocked that this one fell. Why in the world is this happening to me? And it's not even dawning on anybody that it's a decision you made two years ago. Now, you might say, okay, what does that have to do with Proverbs chapter 6? And my answer is, I think that that's the thing they all have in common. The over-promiser needs to see that the agreements that he is agreeing to today affect his finances years from now. Today's a domino that touches tomorrow. The over-promiser, the yeah, I'll sign, the yeah, I'll pledge my money, that affects your life later. It affects your money later. Later they come and they take your bed away. And the slacker needs to realize that the nap he's taking now is connected to the poverty that he's going to experience later. That's that's what the dad says. Chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. I'll reread it. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. The slacker needs to realize 
that the hands resting now is connected to the, the poverty coming like a robber later. And the troublemaker needs to see that his actions now are connected to his life later. The troublemaker, starting in verse 14, it says, He always plots evil with perversity in his heart. He stirs up trouble. And then what happens? What happens after he stirs up trouble? It says in verse 15, Therefore calamity will strike him suddenly. He will be shattered instantly beyond recovery. The troublemaker needs to realize that today is a domino that touches tomorrow. These things are connected. And, and I realize this passage, so it says this and then this. Calamity will strike him suddenly. He will be shattered instantly. And I realize it says the word instantly there. So you mu- and so I just want to be clear. I don't think instantly there means the moment that the troublemaker stirs up trouble, that instant, then calamity strikes him, right? As soon as he tells a lie, as soon as he plots a scheme, boom, calamity strikes him and he's shattered. I don't think that's how it works. First of all, I live in the world. You do too. We know that's not how it works, Right? Right, because, I mean, if every time you told a lie, you were shattered beyond recover instantly, nobody would tell lies. So I don't think that's what this is saying. Well, then what is it saying? I think it's saying that he tells the lies, and he tricks the people, and he schemes the people, and he stirs up trouble, and then one day, calamity strikes, and when it does, it's all of a sudden. It's all at once. He is then instantly shattered, but not instantly shattered because the first time he sinned was five seconds ago. This had been building. And then one day the consequences fell upon him all at once. We know that. We know that there are troublemakers that get away with it for years. In fact, in light of the New Testament, I think it's safe to say there are some people that they get away with it for their whole life and the calamity does not strike them until after this life when God judges them. But I think wisdom would have us know that today is a domino that touches tomorrow. And when we look at this passage and we see that over and over again, and it's not even just this passage, that principle really applies to last week as well. Remember that for those of you that were here? A lot of the adultery stuff was this is now and this is later. So this is, I think, probably something very common in Proverbs. Today is a domino that touches tomorrow. And when you look at these passages, first of all, I want to point out to you, sometimes the foolishness has gone on for so long that it's impossible to fix. Sometimes the foolishness goes on for so long that it's too late to fix. And we, probably the best example of that would be verse 15. Therefore, calamity will strike him suddenly and he will be shattered instantly beyond what? Beyond recovery, beyond remedy. Sometimes the foolishness goes on for so long that there's, the, the dominoes have fallen and it's too late to fix. And then it's also true <laughs> that that's not always true. Right? Sometimes it is not too late to fix it. Sometimes it is not too late to change the direction of the dominoes. How do you know that? Well, again, I live in the world and I know sometimes it's not too late, but it's also in the passage. It's, I think it's implied in the passage. Look at what the, the dad says to the overpromiser in verses three through five. After he says, You've been ensnared by the words of your mouth, you made these promises you shouldn't have made. And then look at verse three Do this then, my son. And free yourself, for you have put yourself in your neighbor's power, right? You've already done it. That domino's already fallen. You, you did it, okay? You have put yourself in your neighbor's power. So now what? He doesn't say, there's nothing that can be done, does he? No, he says, go humble yourself and plead with your neighbor. Don't give sleep to your eyelids or sleep to your eyes or slumber to your eyelids. Escape like a gazelle from a hunter, like a bird from a fowler's trap. It seems to me the dad is saying in this particular case, it is not too late, son. It is not too late. 
Today is a domino that touches tomorrow, but it is not too late mid-course to change the direction of the dominoes. It's not too late, son. Sometimes it is not too late. Sometimes I believe God allows us to come into contact with some wisdom so that we can change the direction of our dominoes, so we can change the direction of our lives. God gives us wisdom so that we can look at it and go, whoa, I was going in the wrong direction. And there's time to fix it. Lastly, I want to go ahead and proclaim the gospel to these three people, the promiser, the slacker, and the troublemaker. So all of this stuff was sort of practical ways we live our life, but I think it's important for us to understand. I mean, we sang a song about the goodness of God. I think it's important for us to remember, why is God so good? And so I want to, I want to tell you the good news in a specific way to these three people. We'll start with the overpromiser. To the overpromiser, I say this. Jesus paid your debt to God. That spiritually, between you and God, if you are going to have a good eternity, if you are going to be right with God, there is a debt, there is a relational, there is a lack of righteousness on your part that causes a problem with you and God. And Jesus paid our debt to God. Every single person who would ever believe in him, he paid their debt when he died on the cross for our sins, dying in our place because that's what we deserve. Jesus is our guarantee. Like he, there's a sense in which he kind of co-signed the loan. I can't afford to pay this. And he said, I will pay it on your behalf. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, it kind of uses sort of legal language like that. In Hebrews 7, 22, after it talks about Jesus as our high priest who swore an oath, it then says, so Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. That Jesus has made promises on our behalf. Jesus has made payments on our behalf. Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. There's a sense in which Jesus has done for us what the dad in Proverbs chapter 6 told his son not to do, right? The dad said, don't take this, these people's debt on as your own, son. And Jesus came and did take our debt on his own. And you might say, well, why in the world is that okay? Why did Jesus do what the dad in the story says don't do? And I think my answer to that is, well, because he could afford it. He died on the cross and he gave his life so that you could have eternal life. Okay, to the slacker, I say this. Jesus has done the work that God requires of you. Jesus is not a slacker. Jesus has worked on your behalf and on my behalf. He, there, there is a certain amount of work that is required of us. If we're going to have a right relationship with God and not be punished forever, there is a certain amount of work that God requires. There's a certain amount of righteousness that God requires of humans. Humans are supposed to do this. We're supposed to do that which is right and Jesus has done the work that God requires so that you don't have to work for your salvation. Now, that's good news, but the reaction to that should not be, oh, well, that's fantastic, then I get to be a slacker, right? Because Jesus was not a slacker for me and he did the work that God requires on my behalf, well, then I get to be a slacker, right? No, no, he, he, he did the works that God requires on your behalf so that you can work for him. See, he designed you to accomplish things. And so he has freed you from the kind of work where you've got to go, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this to make it right, I've got to do this to earn. Because that's one thing. There are probably a lot of people in this world that aren't slackers, but and in fact, they're maybe workaholics, but it's not because they love Jesus so much, right? It's this, this, I've got to prove, I've got to do, I've got to get more. And maybe even some people in a spiritual sense do that with God. I've got to do more, I've got to keep doing more in order to make up for the bad that I've done. I've got to earn, I've got to earn. And Jesus has freed us from that. He's done the works that we're required but he does it so that we can then be on his team and we can work for him 
and do what God's designed us to do. And you can see this in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to just read to you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this. It says, For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Right? So it's like, okay, it's not, it's not by your work. You don't work for it. Right? And that's the part where like, okay, so I don't have to do... I don't have to do any works then. I just do. I, I mean, this is fantastic, right? No, right after, it's not by your works, but by his grace. The very next verse is, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them, which that's kind of metaphorical language. It means so that we should do them. We should do the things that God wants us to do, do the works that have been prepared ahead of time for us to do. And so you can work, and you can work with the right motives. That God has done for you what you could not do, and now you can work for him the way he's designed you to. And then to the troublemaker. To the troublemaker, I say, Jesus came to bring people together. Jesus came to bring together a people. And so Jesus unites people to himself. But in uniting people to himself, he also unites people to each other as brothers and sisters in a family. And so when you trust in him, you become a part of a group. You become a part of a people. You become a part of a household that you are to build up and not tear down. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this. Man, Proverbs is such a practical book. It's far more practical than, I don't know, maybe than I, like, I don't usually, I don't usually gravitate toward these kinds of books in the Bible even. And these kind of, it's more practical of a passage than maybe I would have written. Probably almost certainly. And thank you for sending this father ahead of us. And that we could be warned against things like laziness or adultery or agreeing to these things that we go, oh, I wish I could have got out of this later. Or tiring down all these relationships and then waking up one day and going, I have none. So thank you for this. I pray for those of us in this room that, I don't know, I would imagine it's probably, it takes a very humble heart or, or a softened heart to even see that we struggle with this. I would imagine probably the majority of us would go, well, I, no, I'm not an overpromiser. I'm not a slacker. I don't know exactly what a slacker is, but I know it's definitely not me. It's got to be someone lazier than me. I'm not a troublemaker. I mean, sure, those two people over there hate each other because of the stuff I said, but I mean, I'm not like, I don't think I'm typically a troublemaker. Like, I think it's real easy for us to justify, and I think it's hard, it's easy for us to have hearts that are kind of hard, and we don't see ourselves in this, but I pray that you, in a supernatural way, by your spirit, would help some of us in this room to be able to see, like, like open up the door so that the dad's wisdom can come in, because I think the dad's wisdom is your wisdom. So I pray, I pray you'd allow it to come into our lives. I pray that you would allow wisdom to come into our lives so that some of us that have dominoes going in the wrong direction can turn them before it's too late. And I thank you for the gospel. And thank you that it's not ultimately up to me to save me. And so I just pray that you would be our savior. And we'd cry out to you. And we love you. And we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.